Hollywood doesn't tend to make uh, a lot of westerns these days, um, but you know it really doesn't matter what in what era uh, that genre of film is is produced. You can pretty much count on seeing a tumbleweed at some point during the course of the film, beginning, end, middle, whatever it may be. And I got to tell you, until I had looked it up and read a little bit on a tumbleweed this past week, I really didn't know what it was. It turns out that a tumbleweed is actually the above-ground part of a of, of many different types. It's not just one plant. It's a whole bunch of different plants, but it's just the above-ground part of a bunch of different types of plants that's become dislodged from the roots and then rolls about on the ground, being blown by the wind, willy-nilly spreading the seed. They're in for more of these wonderful little things to sprout up and, and grow. Now, that's all interesting. Um, there, now you know more about tumbleweeds. But frankly, still just looking at it, you know what? It, it still comes down to this. It's still a dried up, tangled mess being blown about just based on where the wind goes. That's where it goes. And thinking about that just a little bit this past week, I, I have to confess to you, and maybe some of you could identify with this, too often I am too much like a tumbleweed. And maybe you can identify with something of this. Um, when my health is good, when uh, I feel like people appreciate me, when there's money in the bank, everything's sunny. I'm good. But when my team is losing, my coffee is cold, or more significantly, if there are personal issues that are weighing on my heart, everything's gloomy. I'm a tumbleweed. And maybe you can identify with something of that. I'm not advocating, please don't misunderstand, I'm not advocating some form of stoicism. I'm not saying, you know, we should just become completely, you know, just switch all that off and become disengaged and, and disconnected from what's going on. That's not the point. But it does seem that there ought to be something more rooted, more stable, more anchored, that my mood, that how I respond to things would not just be governed by and controlled by the latest wind current. Can you identify with this? If you're not nodding, you're lying. Let's turn to the book of Philippians. We call it a book. It's actually a letter. Uh, the letter from the Apostle Paul to a church there in first century Philippi. Uh, if you're trying to find it, uh, it's in the New Testament. It's after the Gospels, and then after Acts, and then after Romans, and the Corinthian letters, and then after Galatians, Ephesians. Before Colossians, you have Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 is where we are this morning, just picking up where we left off last week in this series, looking at this wonderful, majestic letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we are going to be reading verses 12 through 18. So hear now God's holy word. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Let's pray together. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us now this morning to do just that, just as you have urged us to do, to taste and see that you are good, to take our refuge in you. In you we know that we would not then lack no good thing, but without you, we have nothing, ultimately nothing. Nothing on which to stand, nothing on which to base anything, no source, no center, no core, no foundation, no compass, nothing. We ask that you would, as we say so often in moments like this, give us eyes with which to see, ears with which to hear, a heart that would then beat and cadence with you, and feet and hands that then would move in the ways in which you would have us to move. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'll call your memory back to the tsunami that wrecked Japan back in 2011. Okay, so that terrible, terrible tsunami, that earthquake that then caused this wave to sweep over the land. The casualties were catastrophic. Roughly, I'm rounding numbers, okay, but roughly 16,000 were killed. Uh, some 6,000 were injured. Another 3,000 were reported missing. The damage was catastrophic as well. Tens of billions of dollars in terms of reconstruction costs. Infrastructure everywhere just... <sighs> Swept away, quite, quite literally, buildings and bridges and dams, uh, utility companies. What some of you may not know is that the island itself, according to GPS sensors, the main island of Japan was moved eight feet by that earthquake. Even past that, Scientists tell us that the earth itself had its axis shifted somewhere between 4 and 10 inches. Now imagine what kind of power can do that. To move the nation, the main island of Japan, 8 feet, and shift a planet, the one on which we live, somewhere between... Four and ten inches, depending on you know, the measurements you're looking at. Now, I've used this analogy before. Some of you have heard, 
heard this before, but I'm going to go with it again. Imagine what kind of power we're talking about that can do that, and then understand this, that that power is but a wisp, is but a glimmer, is but a shadow, is but nothing compared to the power of the Almighty God and Creator of all things. And that power that can shift a planet on its axis is still at work in the lives of human hearts today, shifting the axis of our lives. And Paul, the man who wrote this letter, was living proof of that. Paul the Saul, the former Pharisee, now Paul the Apostle, the author of this, this letter, had once been, if you will, his axis had been set on being a self justifying, self-righteous, self-dependent man. But then he met the risen, resurrected, ruling King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus, on that road to Damascus. And Paul's axis got shifted. He came into a living encounter with God's transforming grace. And nothing was the same after that. Because his axis had been shifted. He, 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 it comes out even in what we've looked at over the last few weeks, even in what we've just read here. The man had a new source of life, a new center to his life. He had been set free. Set free to follow Christ. And that's really the theme of this text here. Those who would follow Christ... Find themselves, find him, excuse me, those who follow Christ, find him then to be the new source, the new center of life. Set free then from living for the small and the petty. Set free then from living for the, the transitory and the temporary and that which will slip right out of your fingers and never ultimately satisfy. Set free from all that. Set free to follow him. Set free to live for more. Set free to live, as Paul says here, to live for the advance of the gospel. To have roots, to have a center, to have a core, to have a foundation out of which you live. Set free. The word there, actually there in verse 12, that's translated in the English as advance. You could translate as progress. It's basically, the image is this. When Paul speaks of the advance of the gospel, this chief aim that the follower of Christ then has. That advance of the gospel conjures up this image of, of, of a mighty army moving across the field of battle. It's the advance of the gospel. That's the image. And what Paul is saying here is that for the follower of Christ, that is our chief aim. That is our overarching thing that we are now... It's, it's the thing that governs all our hopes and dreams and aspirations and the deep, as the Puritans used to say, the affections of our hearts. And having that as our one great aim controls and governs how we respond to things so that we're not then just blown about like a tumbleweed. There's then roots, flourishing, fruitful roots Having this one chief aim, 
this one chief aim that controls and governs how we respond. And Paul shows us in two ways as examples from his own life. It controls and governs how we respond when circumstances are hard and even more personally, maybe more painfully, when our, relation, when our reputations are under attack. Having that as our chief aim gives us roots. It governs and controls how we respond to things like, even to things like that. Let's look at those two things, those two case studies that Paul gives us here that we might not just be blown and tossed by the wind. Okay, so Paul is saying when we have the advance of the gospel as our chief aim, it transforms how we respond when our circumstances are hard. Let's look at verses uh, 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What's Paul getting at here? Apparently, Paul is alluding to something, this thing that has happened to him that his readers they know what he's talking about. They're well-versed in what he's talking about here. In fact, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you would be familiar with it as, as well because that's we find these historical events recorded for us there in what Luke writes and is the second, of his, uh, second part of his larger work, Acts and Luke. Luke writes there in the book of Acts what had happened to Paul. What had happened to Paul? What is he hearkening back to? A stage, I'll say, break it up in three stages as you're looking through the book of Acts and after the, Paul's third missionary journey. First, his arrest and imprisonment. He's, uh, he faces there in Jerusalem um, a gross misrepresentation, crass insults, a plot against his life. Uh, he's later sent out to, to Caesarea. He's locked up, suffers gross injustice, delays of trial, Finally, after I think it was two years, comes the journey to Rome. And that doesn't go well. The time in Jerusalem and Caesarea were bad enough. Then comes the journey itself, heading to Rome. Um, there's a storm that he talks about for a chapter or two there in the book of Acts. There's a shipwreck. This is worse than, you know, Salmonella breaking out on the cruise. This is a shipwreck. And then, as though that's not bad enough, on the island of Malta, the man gets bitten by a poisonous snake for crying out loud. This is not going well, what has happened to him. So you have Jerusalem, Caesarea, the journey to Rome, and then the arrival in Rome. Now he's there on a tourist trip, right? No. No, from the moment he gets off the ship, the man is in chains. He's imprisoned. He is under arrest. He's bound by chain or by ankle, maybe both, to a guard. His mobility is hindered, shall we say. He's under house arrest, awaiting trial, completely uncertain, really, as to how this is going to play out. This is what's happened to him. And it's interesting that, you know, in, in the English we can say, what has happened to me has really served to, as though, now, I, I know it's not, it's not what you think. 
It looks like everything's come, but this is something that's, no, what's really happened is something else. So how does he respond? Well, what you might expect, if, if he's like you or I, Paul would be sitting there in his cell, sullen and depressed. Or angry and bitter because of his circumstances. I mean, after all, the man is not accustomed to sitting still. Paul, if you know anything about him, is a man of action. He's on the move, and his movements have been so restricted and constrained for so long. And now, now, where he thought he was going to be going to preach the gospel, he's under, well, he's a captive. Well, what? that's what you might expect, but what happens? What do we see? What, is it, what does he relay, and how does he relay it? He tells us that the gospel is advancing. That's the man's perspective. That's his joy. That's how he sees. That's how he's viewing all of this. The, the lens through which he's seeing all of this is that the gospel is advancing. They're in the barracks through the imperial guard. You know who the imperial guard was? This was the, the, um, the special hand-picked guard of the emperor. This is, these are the crack troops and there they are, and they, they are taking, they're, they're doing shifts. One guy comes in to relieve the other guy, takes the chains off, puts the chains on, shift work. And there's Paul. These men, the, the members of this Imperial Guard, are the captive audience of the captive. You don't think Paul, it's clear, it's inferred from the text, is preaching the gospel to each one of these men? They can't kill him. He can say whatever he wants in this context. And so the word is spreading through the, the barracks of the imperial guard of this strangely joyful prisoner who's not protesting his innocence, but rather proclaiming this Jesus. And the word is spreading of this strangely joyful man and the message that he bears. The gospel is advancing. And not only that, that's one front. There's yet another front. Paul tells us of the, uh, the other Christians there in Rome, the church there in Rome, as the news is getting out of Paul's situation and how he is seized on this situation and the ministry and the proclamation that's coming through all this, the church, the other believers there in Rome are finding themselves to become all the more encouraged, and emboldened to follow his example. An example, by the way, that got him where he is, that they are now willing to follow themselves. Such is the contagious nature of this joy. Such is its infectious nature that it is spreading to one front, to the imperial guard within the barracks, then through the ordinary believers there within the city of Rome going out into all vestiges of Roman society, Paul, what he's saying is, my, my, my friends, don't you see what we thought was nothing but the greatest setback that we could have feared has proved to be the greatest advancement of the gospel that we could have imagined because the word is going forth into places and in ways that Paul never could have reached ever, in his wildest dreams. 
And that's the way God works. What we think is the worst setback, he has designed to be the great advance. What we declare to be a demolition job, he says is a construction site. I mean, think just about the, those home makeover shows, those crazy home makeover shows that you see on TV, or just your own experience with maybe just some remodeling thing that you've taken on. You know, there's that time in the project where it's nothing but dust and debris everywhere, right? It looks like our, your house has been wrecked, or this room, or what nook, or whatever it was. And to the untrained eye, and to the uninformed person, it looks like nothing good could possibly, there's, no, there's nothing positive of this at all. You've just wrecked the place. And no. No, the designer has so much more in mind. The divine contractor, in this case, if you will, has so much more in mind. And we need to hear that. We need to hear that and, and consider how Paul responds because I think we are, well, okay, you could imagine Paul being tempted to respond this way to these circumstances. Okay, I'm in jail. I've had enough. I'm depressed. The coffee's weak. It's cold. I've got this obnoxious soldier sitting here. I'm chained. I can't do anything I want. There's nothing good that could possibly come of any of this. I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to sit and bide my time until this gets ironed out, and then I'll serve God. That's not what he does. He, his conviction is that there is never a wrong time. His conviction is, is that no matter the circumstances, that is the opportunity that God has put before us to serve him. No matter what the circumstances are or how they appear to us, how we may gauge them. I mean, think with me, how many times have you been tempted to say something like this? Maybe you've never articulated or voiced it, but somewhere it's going on in, in the basement of your heart. Okay, when I get the right job, when all the craziness in my life works itself out, when my relationships are finally right, then I'll turn my attention to you. Look, there's two things to consider there in response to that. First, we can't afford to wait. We can't afford to wait till everything is just right. You know why? You know why? Because it will never be just right. So we can't afford to wait. Here's the second thing. We don't need to. We don't need to. God has shown himself again and again and again to be ever so able to work in and through the mess of our lives, even in the worst of circumstances. Do you see? It doesn't have to be like the tumbleweed. When he is the center, when he is the source of our lives, he sets us free to focus in on more, on more than the wind, on more than the circumstances on the advance of the gospel. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, following up from that, and again, I would say that maybe you could make a case that this is even more painful uh, for Paul to have to reckon with. When our chief aim, when our greatest thing that we're aspiring for 
is the proclamation of the gospel, the advance of the gospel, Jesus and the advance of the kingdom, the cause of the king, when that looms over everything else, it then enables us to respond sanely even when our reputation is attacked. Look what he says here in verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Or you could translate that, what does it matter? Or maybe in our vernacular, so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Okay, what's going on here? It seems that, and this is not surprising, pretty much everywhere Paul went, he stirred something up, and this was no different there in the city of Rome, and within the, even within the church of Rome. Paul's arrival, his ministry, and the news of what he was undergoing, there being locked away, had caused a stir within the church. In essence, he's saying there are basically two groups of people. One group is going forth out of love for Christ and solidarity with Paul proclaiming the gospel. But there's another group proclaiming that same message with the desire to exalt themselves and humiliate Paul. Now, on closer look, it's interesting to think about what's going on there, the dynamics, especially considering that second group. We're not sure. Paul doesn't really tell us, actually, a whole lot about them, except inferring it seems to be some form of jealousy of some kind. We're not exactly sure what. But this is worth noting. These folks weren't heretics. Did you note that? They're not heretics. They're, pre they're preaching Jesus. Their motives were selfish, but the message is true. You've got to know that based on everything we know about Paul and his other letters, if their message was heretical, if this was a man-centered gospel, he would have called them out. But he praises, he's glad for it. So their, their motive was selfish, but the message is true. Now, you know, obviously then the truth of the message based on their behavior, had only gone but so far into their hearts. Now, what is, how does he respond to this? Well, again, you, how, what would you expect? If he's you, you or I, we would expect a strong rebuke. I mean, like off-the-scale angry kind of stuff, if it's you or I. Okay, just me. I won't put you in there. Um, we would expect some kind of personal charge, maybe digging up some dirt on these guys and putting, putting that in. You know, just, well, you know, I, I'm not sure, but I heard somebody say, do a little politicking in there. Throw some mud. See, because we are so unaccustomed to strong leaders doing anything but when, when the success of others comes about, we are so accustomed to strong leaders being unable to handle that when others are successful in their same sphere. So this is so strange. This is so counterintuitive. This is so unexpected. And you've got to ask yourself, what are the roots of this? Where does that come from? 
It sort of reminds me of, it just hit me while uh, Genesis 50 was being read earlier this morning in the service. You know, David is anchored in something deeper than the wind that then frees him to respond to his brothers with compassion. It's something like that, akin to that going on here. But surely Paul is hurt. He wasn't from Vulcan. Surely Paul is, is hurt. He's wounded by what's taking place here. But the thing is that the most important thing for him was not whether he was gaining universal respect. The most important thing for the man was the gospel. Is it being advanced? Is Jesus being proclaimed? That's what he wants to know. That's the anchor for his soul. You see, Paul, like his Lord and Savior, and we'll read about this in the second chapter, Paul, like his Lord and Savior, is not chiefly concerned for his own interests. What Paul is locked in on is his Lord and Savior, Jesus. And whether the work and person of that Jesus is being proclaimed. So that begs the question, is the advance of the gospel enough for you and me? In the times of deep personal pain, interactions with others, is the proclamation of Jesus enough? Is, is Him being honored and glorified enough for us? Is it enough? I mean, I think just in terms of like examples of, of interpersonal conflict and, and the things that are said that have to be repaired and healed, those are bad enough. You know, the, the gossip, the true things that are said to people who don't need to know, the slander that's said, the false things that are spread around. That's messy enough to have to deal with and clean up afterwards. It's made all the more complicated by our idolatrous love of our good name and reputation that causes us to respond in this way. You don't understand. If I don't stand up for myself and defend this, who will? So not only does the healing and the, and the repair job have to take place because of the words that have been said, now you've got this heart issue. This thing that needs to be laid down at the foot of the cross. Going a little further, if you're a Christian, or if you're here this morning and you're considering Christianity, you need to understand this and the dynamic here. But if you're a Christian, it's not a matter of wit, if, but when there's going to be an attack a personal attack on your name and reputation. It's going to come, and likely it will come repetitively. And the reason is because you are living in a world, the stream, the flow, doesn't go the same way. It's an against-the-grain kind of thing. There's a collision of two worlds there. You might hear something like this. You're so religious. You're so narrow. Where do you get off being so holier than thou, you stupid Jesus freak? 
Now that can come from the outside. But as Paul shows us here, it can come from fellow believers too. And again, the question has to be asked, how will you respond? Is the gospel, the advance of the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus enough for us? Are we able to say with Paul, what does it matter? What then? So what? If Christ is our chief aim, if he is, if you will, what we're about, if he is our identity, we can say that because he is the center and the source of our lives and has set us free from living according to the blow, the most recent weather front and blowing of the wind. Paul is, is helping us to see what the secret to true lasting joy is. Some of you may know, one major theme with the, this letter, the letter to the Philippians, is that theme of joy, joy in all times, in all circumstances, in all places. Paul is, is getting into that already here at this point. The secret to true lasting joy is to be tied to something sure. To have our joy tied to something certain and secure, such that, if you will, where it goes, our joy goes with it. I'll tell you a story. Not true. So don't even bother Googling it on your phones now. Okay, so there's a story of these two men who are walking through the woods. And uh, they, they come upon this deep hole there in the ground. And one of them takes a rock, as we are you know, prone to do, and throws it in. Just kind of listens. Doesn't hear it hit the bottom. So he and his buddy decide, okay, we're going to get a small-sized boulder. And they lift it up, lug it on over, and roll it in. And they listen. Don't hear anything. Now they're really into this, thinking, oh, my goodness, how deep is this hole? We need to find something really big and drop it in there. So they look and they look and they look, and they find this old railroad tie. And they heave it up and they move it over, and they roll it in. And they listen, and they don't hear anything. And then all of a sudden, from behind them out of the woods, comes this goat, just flying, I mean running, faster than the wind. Goes right by them and jumps straight down into the hole. They're like, whoa, did you see that? And then, a little while later, this farmer, this old guy, comes out of the woods. Again, I'm making, I'm, I'm, well, it's not true. I didn't make it up, but. Old guy comes out of the woods and he says, have either one of you guys seen my goat? And they said, well, I don't know. I mean, we did see a goat come like running, flying out of the woods and he jumped straight down. Could that be your goat? He says, nah, nah, it can't be my goat. My goat was tied to a railroad tie. There you go. That, my friends, is the secret to true lasting joy. The goat tied to the railroad tie. Forever and ever, this sermon will be known as the railroad time goat. Anyway, um, our joy for it to be true and lasting. Here's my point. I woke you up. I had to do that because we're, we're wrapping it up, right? For our joy to be true and lasting, it has to be tied securely to something that is true and lasting. Understand? And that is the secret. 
Where it goes, our joy then is sure to follow. Okay, Paul, where is the man? He was chained, chained to a soldier. His circumstances are, are bleak. His reputation is in utter tatters. And yet he rejoices. Why? Because his life was given over. The chief aim of his life, his hopes, his dreams, his affections, his desires were what? For Jesus. The proclamation, the advance of the gospel. Something. You see, his joy, his hope was tied to something that was absolutely sure and certain. The cause of his king. The advancement of the gospel. So he has a joy that is not like the tumbleweed, that is rooted and lasting and can endure storm of storms, disasters of disasters, because he's rooted in something that lasts, in someone who holds him securely. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are not intending for us to live as tumbleweeds. You know that you mean so much more for us than to be governed and controlled by shifting winds and than at the mercy of circumstances and enslaved to whatever has come upon us. You mean so much more for us. You've given us a greater hope, a greater cause, a root, an anchor, a center, the advancement of the gospel, the proclamation of you, Jesus. And this world needs this, this decaying world in which we are called to be salt, this dark world in which we're called to be light. Then ministering to one another, reminding each other of these very things of who we are, what you've done, how this could be, and where all this is going. Oh, we pray that you would remind us, refresh us in these realities, dig them impress them deeply, deeply, deeply into our hearts. Oh, that we would be rooted. In your name we pray. Amen. If I may ask our ushers to come forward as we are going to take some time the next few minutes to respond. And um, 2 Corinthians 8-9 is printed there in your bulletin. It's in the midst of a much larger passage where Paul is talking about a collection that he is taking up for some... Uh, a need offering, a mercy offering of the, for the church back in Jerusalem. And note what he says. Note how he encourages uh, his, his readers in this. Um, and may we hear it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And Paul is not speaking here of a future one day when you'll be rich. He means now. Now. We are richer than we ever dared dream. Because he has made himself poor for us. Let's give with that in mind.